Welcome to today's podcast brought to you by Chris Heidel and Neil Modi, where we talk about our reflections on the marketplace and travel and all of the other things that we're interested in. But by day, Chris Heidel is a registered investment advisor and I, Neil Modi, am a venture capitalist focused on med devices. Like today, I think we're going to talk about Cuba and just some of our observations in general about the market. And uh, maybe next episode, we'll bring one of our guests back. Yeah, that'll be fine. I, um, you I should get just... John Cummins, by the way. I, I've been trying to, I've been thinking about him a bunch more recently. About whom? John Cummings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no question. He's getting a, a fair, uh, you know, he, he finds his way into the press. So it's fantastic. It's good, too. I think it's a journey of healing for our country and uh, at the Whitney Plantation. So we'll bring him back for sure. The, but, uh, you know, as I was sharing with you about my recent trip to Cuba, it was pretty fascinating on so many fronts. But I think first, you know, and <clears throat> the work I do building and managing portfolios for clients and doing financial planning, um, there was none of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is some of that. I mean, the observations you were making about the cost of uh, of goods, and you know, made me wonder about the market basket of goods there. And well, what, yeah, right. What a dollar equals, and what a dollar does not equal there, or a euro yeah. in your case. Yeah, well, and, and you know, the uh, the economy is just the name we give, an abstraction we, you know, that we give uh, thought to when it's just what people do every day for work. So. I stayed at the Riviera Hotel in Havana, and that was very interesting. Every morning, I could look out my hotel window, and that was the uh, Meyer Lansky Hotel that was built just a few years before the revolution. And of course, he picked up and went to Las Vegas and built the Riviera there after the revolution. So this hotel is like, uh, like a lot of Havana, just frozen in time. It's really a time capsule, which is in and of itself fascinating. Um, but I could look out my window every day, and I guess there was some training going on. They had these um, employees lined up with a certain tie, um, white shirts, black ties, lined up in the hot sun outside next to this large swimming pool with three big diving platforms, again, from the 50s. <laughs> they probably had some sort of shows out there. Anyway, um, and, you know, two people, I guess, grilling them or training them or something. Uh, it was just fascinating to, to see both the way people navigate that system and also those kinds of inefficiencies, you know. Um, but it reminded me a lot of, uh, as you know, Neil, I lived in China. In right. The, in the good old days or the bad old days, depending on your perspective. <laughs> it, no, it, it depends on whether you work for the government or not. Because um, uh, if you work for the government, you're high enough up, you can maybe grunt a little bit. And if not, it, every day in China is a good day. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> you're a Chinese citizen. Yeah. Well, there are places, you know, you may have felt it if you visited India, especially the, the poorer parts like the, you know, the northern part of India and, um, Chris, I was trying to give you the Chinese communist line, right? Every day is a good day in China. <laughs> you missed that. You, you're working for the People's Daily now? <laughs> yeah, you know, you said, like our good buddy Leo. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That would be a good person to talk to, but it might be uh, fraught with difficulty as the Chinese. <laughs> right, right, for him to talk to us now. It has become more autocratic there. But in the in the old days, you know, 
the people were poor, but there was um, first a universality of of that, and I, and the the poverty wasn't desperate, so there wasn't a sense of desperation, but there was a hopefulness for more, and that's what it feels like in Cuba. I mean, you don't see people starving, you don't see a sense of desperation like uh, I felt once on a visit to Haiti, um, and probably still today, Haiti's in a hard way with the storms and the problems. Um, but there are, there are some things that are making life difficult for the average Cuban. You know, um, Obama had opened up the, the travel restrictions, re relaxed them, and right. that brought a lot of tourism right from America to Cuba. And um, many of the companies beefed up their um, hiring for tourism. Havana Tour, which is one of the biggest tour companies in Cuba, um, hired a lot of people away from hotels. And then when Trump came in and um, tightened the restrictions again, a lot of the tourism fell away very, very quickly. So there is a sense of suffering and as if something was taken away. The bartender at the hotel, at the Riviera Hotel, this fellow Ernesto, who I was uh, able to talk to, <laughs> was pretty uh, stressed. He seemed really stressed, you know, like uh, when you're sitting with a New York City cab driver. <laughs> don't seem don't seem present and so i no kept asking him what, what was the matter and he's just like i just don't know you know I'm, i got used to making a certain amount of money there were a lot of tourists the hotel was fairly empty you know a few europeans and some others from latin america but uh, maybe some some people from spain but not uh the american tourism was the big wave that uh, has receded and that's that's affecting him and and also you know, the Trump administration has a policy of disrupting um, shipments to Cuba, especially energy, oil and energy. And a lot of the oil comes from Venezuela or was in trade. And that's disrupted naturally. And then we're not helping um, or facilitating right. anything that makes it easier for the Cuban people. So there were long lines for petrol. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just a, a general sense of hopefulness that the administration can change in the US, which can open the door again, because they felt like things were really moving, like this kind of new golden age. And just in two years, it was wiped away entirely. They said- Wait, so, yeah. so start to take me through a little bit of the spending, right? So like you, you were, you know, you said I bought a drink and it was like a buck. I went and bought this and it was like a buck. I went and bought this. And yeah, I was yeah, like, wait, yeah. wait, things are very inexpensive there. This seems like a phenomenal value vacation. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it's uh, very inexpensive. When you when you travel to Cuba, though, it's best to have euros or a, a non-dollar currency that you can exchange. There's a, still a penalty that's a remainder from the Bush era, um, about a 15% Bush tax, they call it. <laughs> they call it that. Is this senior or junior? Uh, junior. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because of the, uh, you know, he renewed the embargo and strengthen the, the trade restrict uh, travel restrictions, trade restrictions, um, and really um, was putting a lot of pressure on the Cuban government. And um, then when he left and Obama came in, after a couple of years, those uh, restrictions were relaxed. The embargo was relaxed. An embassy opened in uh, D.C. It was really a kind of ushering in a new age, a new era. Um, they had hoped of cooperation, and then things have gone backwards but now trade is uh, sorry tourism is even lower 
than it was with Bush. So it's really quite a step backwards for them. Well, part part of it, as I'm reading about these sonic weapons, I, t- I take it your room was just fine and your hearing's just fine and you're okay. Yeah. I mean, there was a bunch of like, you know, there was a bunny, bunch of articles about the lack of safety of Cuba. And I'm like, I don't really want to go. And then you were like, hey, I went to Cuba this last weekend. Everything was cheap. Everybody was great. There was good music. Uh, there's no reason not to go. And I'm like, okay, well, that's the ringing endorsement I needed to go. I know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think we all have to really remember where we are in history and really think for ourselves. Um, you know, the, the country is among the safest. Is that what world. you're saying? Is, is is that you're saying? Don't don't read. Trust everything I'm reading on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, even like um, official publications will have, you know, their own perspective. Obviously, it's um, become more and more the era of propaganda, and we have to be mindful that um, I I don't know in the in it seems in the collective consciousness. Everyone is trying to get their opinion, not necessarily their facts, but their opinion heard. And that, <laughs> right. right. So it leads to a lot of slanted journalism, a lot of um, uh, even more outrageous cries so you can be heard over the crowd. So it gets um, the volume of uh, nonsense is really at a high, but I can't say it's an all time high. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Hold on. See, so. You know, in those uh, attacks I was talking about, were those fabricated or, you know? The Cuban people believe they were fabricated by the Trump administration in order to roll back um, the advances, that there was no reason to um, go back to the Bush era. You know, Fidel Castro has died. Um, He really carried um, the... I guess the pain of the revolution and that idea of a common enemy, which a lot of governments can use to their advantage. And I mean, let's face it, we did try to kill him a whole bunch of times. So <laughs> you know. that old thing, forgive and forget. Facts are facts, right? Right. <laughs> so we got, yeah, we went Bay out. of pigs. <laughs> yeah, forget remarkably, about it. <laughs> we were un- unsuccessful, and so that emboldened him, and also did create this real sense of a common enemy, which strengthened him as a leader. Um, but, you know, as he's passed away and his brother's taken over and now his brother has given way to a new chief executive, there's a, a different sense in the country and they would like more cooperation. They're open. And so did they, is their leader a strong man, as we call them as well? I think always there's a very um, autocratic heritage in uh, a country like Cuba. You know, I mean. If we look at the pendulum swinging in China, too, we can see it. When I lived there in 89 and 90, it was under Deng Xiaoping, even though he was ailing his his daughters, his family, his legacy was still in very much in control. And um, it's now, again, with Xi kind of swung back to this imperial dynastic um, model where, you know, he's got this really all-encompassing power that he has and so the Chinese experiment with democracy, if you can even call it that, or right, right, yes, some you can call it leadership. You can call you can call it that. I don't know if that's what it is. You can call it that. Yeah, I guess you you know inside the party at least there was a chance for new leadership to emerge every ten years, and now that's well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what president. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm not betting on him for ten years. I just want to point that out. 
I'm sorry. What I'm not that? betting on President Xi uh, for ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. I mean, it's a yeah, but president for life anyway. So I guess if he's out, he's going to have to die. <laughs> he's going out, toes up. <laughs> right. So, toes wait, up. so take me to, to to Cuba. One of the things I wonder about countries um, comes from a conversation we had about the productivity and uh, of the United States and the cost of goods and mm-hmm. you know when our when our our value of the dollar was the strongest. And I think you and I were talking about how, you know, the, the golden age was like 77, 78 in this country one time. Uh, in terms of purchasing power, yeah. Yes. Yeah, probably. And, and so where's the purchasing power early. in Cuba, right? Like, you know. Uh, yeah, well, they, <clears throat> like all countries, they want dollars. Um, the government has a penalty on converting the currency, but you can find black market currency converters, you know, people who are willing to trade dollars at the at par with the kook the cuban currency the cuc they call them kooks the you know currency traded uh about a dollar eight i mean uh one euro 1.08 to the euro so you had a little eight percent premium by bringing in euros and if you brought in dollars you got 85 cents to the dollar yes but it doesn't really tell me what it buys right i heard yeah, very different pricing. That's but, what but, I'm trying to understand. How much is you know an average house cost there? How much does yeah? How much well, does it cost for you know how was how much was your average meal? Um, yeah, so everything is pretty inexpensive. We got um, you know, and first let me just say the food's fantastic and it is farm to table. They don't really have access to a lot of the industrial fertilizers and things that we use um, when the you mean Roundup with, hasn't made it there? That's great. Well, they, they have some of it, but it requires, you know, um, chemicals. And so most people that do their own subsistence farming or they raise pigs and chickens. Um, so you see um, pork is a big staple of the Cuban diet. So you see pigs roasting all the time everywhere. Um, you could pick up a little pork sandwich on the street for like 50 cents, which it, they are wonderful. I don't eat them, but I could see the joy on people's faces. You could get a giant ice cream cone. <laughs> for like uh 28 to 38 cents a double was like the water safe there though yes yeah yeah so you, you drink know, out they, of the tap yeah we could drink you can drink out of the tap the water it wasn't clean. like uh your your when you landed in delhi and quick quickly you learned what delhi was. oh yeah yeah the delhi water supply i got tricked i was in the the crown plaza which had all this marble and brass fixtures and i was i woke up thinking i was in a palace and drank and brushed my teeth (laughs) but cuba no the you know it's a it's really remarkable um the healthcare system in cuba right um doctors make 50 kook a month is the going rate so as a medical doctor you um earn 50 cuban dollars a month which is nothing if you work in a record store i talked to some of those guys they earn about 20 to 22 kook a month so, you know, <clears throat> it's uh, important to for a lot of these people to kind of help tourists or try to find a way to make money on the side. Um, a lot of people sell black market cigars. There was an old saying in China when I lived there, if you don't steal from the factory, you're stealing from your family. I think. Wow. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. Pretty clear. Right. It's probably an old uh, Eastern European saying too. any communist country but uh 
I get definitely got that feeling. You know, a lot of people had cigars for sale, and I think those have fallen into their pockets <laughs> in some right. some way, right? For them to take a little extra to sell. Um, I talked to a guy who worked in a furniture factory, but he said there's no work. He just had to show up every day, and um, he got like 20 kook a month too. Um, he said you just show up, and they would sit around and talk and drink coffee or whatever. So he said there wasn't really much to do. Um, so there's those make work schemes. I think there's 2.1 million people in Havana alone. And the city is really like a decaying flower. It has its true, true beauty. But boy, you know, there are some pockets, of course, they look like a bomb went off. And then right next to it is a magnificent mansion or a magnificent old building. It's the 500th anniversary of the founding of Havana this year. So they had episodic, um, you know, sporadic celebrations around the city for this 500th anniversary. Wait, so really, how, you, really you, you've avoided my question about how much things cost. You haven't done a very good job at that. Well, I, I don't know. How much is an average? Did you look at any? I mean, you talked about the beach when you went one other time before and how beautiful it was. Yeah. Is this a place you would consider buying a condo? Is this a place you'll... Yeah, you could. Now, those, you know, the Cuban government doesn't sell. You can't buy as a foreigner. Um, you can't own any property. But a Cuban national can own property. They can own one house in the city and one house at least 30 miles outside of the city. So you could have a beach house and a city apartment. But as a Cuban national, you're only allowed to, to own two um, residential buildings. But a lot of people don't have, I mean, any money at all. I mean, a lot of people live, you know, just outside the city in the campo, in the, on farms or in kind of like farming communes, little villages. Um, they're able to subsist again. You know, there's, there, it seemed like food was available. Um, I don't want to say plentiful, but there was enough. Again, I didn't see... Um, also, again, with the healthcare system, unlike uh, India and even China at the time, you didn't see a lot of sick people, mentally ill people, homelessness um, on the streets. Is that because they yeah. round them up at, at night and took them somewhere? Or is no. that because they, they actually weren't well taken care of? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in, in, uh, in a place like India, <clears throat> where begging is in heart, and uh, a centuries-old tradition. You really didn't see that in in Cuba, in Havana so, too, the biggest city. So wait, so so would you ever invest in real estate in Cuba yourself? I know you can't buy it, but you, know, you can't I, buy it. You can get a nominator, and they're opening it up. Um, Raúl Castro did make some reforms that people were very happy with. Um, like uh, they could see, like talking to cab drivers, they said over the last four years or five years. You could really see the civic improvements, like streets were being redone. They were taking tax money from tourism. So, you know, cab drivers had to report a certain amount of income. I'm not sure I know how the system works. But anyway, the government was taxing them on income, at least to what they could. But <clears throat> the cab drivers didn't mind because it made the streets better. They could really see oh, interesting. the improvements. So I think that there was popular support, at least from the very small sample size I had, but kind of people who were being taxed the most, like those in, involved with tourism and those who get um, tips and um, have direct contact with foreigners who have much, much more means and more money than they do.
So um, I brought some stuff to give away, which was great, like Halloween candy. Boy, people went crazy for it. Crazy. For Cuban you know? Halloween candy? Was it yeah. much better or different? <clears throat> you know, Coca-Cola. I mean, don't they, don't they sell, those... yeah. Don't they sell Coke and Snickers? Well, you know, back in the 50s, of course, all the big corporations had headquarters um, and, or operations in Cuba because of all the sugarcane, bananas, cocoa, cacao, the chocolate. So Hershey, yeah. they could they could process a lot of it right there in Cuba. So there is a chocolate museum and there's a history of chocolate making in Cuba, just like in other places in the uh, Caribbean uh, and the, in the Gulf of Mexico and around there from, you know, um, from the Yucatan all the way down to Brazil. But the chocolate in Cuba is terrible. <laughs> it's definitely a failure of socialism, the chocolate making. So, and what about just plain Coke? Was that, I mean, that, that's probably- No, right? I don't know. I don't really drink soda, but um, they, you know- um, Coffee must've been good then. I know you drink a lot of yeah, coffee. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's fine. They must do it in trade. Usually, <clears throat> that's a good question, Neil. You know, when I lived in China, Pepsi had all the trade with uh, the socialist countries. They would trade because, uh, you know, they owned Pizza Hut as well. So they would trade for Pepsi for mushrooms. China would grow mushrooms and give and trade those with um, Pizza Hut or Tricon Global restaurants, uh, Pepsi basically, for, in exchange for Pepsi. So when we were in China, we would only drink Pepsi because the Coca-Cola, the quality was suspect. They, those were adulterated bottles. There was no quality control. Hilarious. Yeah, and in Cuba, though, I have to say, look, the Cuban people are very clean. They work with what they have. It's really remarkable. If you go inside someone's apartment, which I visited a few, um, <clears throat> it's remarkably clean. They don't have glass on the windows. Like I was in old Havana, Havana Vieja, and um, I asked these this guy was drawing caricatures, uh, caricatures. What's the right way to say it? Caricatures. <laughs> Got to put the accent on the right syllable. He um, was drawing pictures of the tourists, you know, for a dollar here, a dollar there. And uh, he started talking to me and where are you from? And we started talking and he said, oh yeah. I said, where do you live? Where'd you grow up? He's like, oh, just around the corner. My family apartment's around the corner. I said, do you mind? Can, can I visit or is it okay? And I'll, you know, so I gave him like 15 kook which is a fair amount of money for them and for him. And uh, he took me around his apartment, which was this beautiful old building. I mean, it was dilapidated as hell, <laughs> but they had a marble staircase in the middle, a big open courtyard, tile floors that were chipped up and many broken. But you could see these uh, stone tiles, the plaster work, which was also cracked and broken and falling down in places was um, a definite sign of a glorious past. Um, and then his family kept coming out of the ceiling. He had like a, Out of the ceiling? Yeah, they had this one room and he had a bed. I guess it's a, it, it is his bed. It was really um, cinder blocks. Um, there were some posts, but they were broken, like a four post bed, wooden. And uh, he had blocks and bricks on it to keep it stable. And then he had for a mattress, this, um, I guess it was like a large, like a duvet cover, but it was stuffed with something. I don't know, horse hair or moss or something, hay. I don't know what was in it, but um, it looked pretty, pretty hard, pretty firm. <laughs> anyway, in, in that one room, 
they had a bamboo ladder that went up into the ceiling. They had like a square cut out of the ceiling. And um, that was where his brothers lived, up in, I guess, another room upstairs. And that was the way up in and down, just on this ladder. He had two brothers in there himself. And then his mom lived in another part of the courtyard. And she came over and said hello. And there was a sister who I didn't meet. And they all live in, I guess, these three rooms, which were probably 10 by 10, maybe? No. Oh, interesting. Eight by eight. Yeah. yeah. Wait, so can you talk about the folks you visited um, there? Or, or are you not allowed to talk about that? Um, oh, well, I can. I mean, I met um, two of Fidel Castro's sons. I didn't talk to them about anything. You said two of, you know. Was he like prolific, like Genghis Khan? <laughs> That's what um, I'm curious about well, what you say two of. Right. What's known is he had a son, Fidel, Fidelito, with his first wife. Um, Fidelito sadly committed suicide, I think, three or four years now. Might be a little longer. Um, so that he was the oldest. And then um, Fidel Castro married a, a woman from Spain and had five children with her. And all of them have names that start with A. Um, Alejandro, Alexis, um, Alisa. Um, so which ones did you meet? So I met Alejandro. I think he's the oldest of the five children. And I met Alex, who's a photographer and has a studio in Havana. So he has a photography studio you can visit and see his work. He's very talented. Um, both were very, very nice guys. Of course, we didn't talk about anything substantive. We had dinner. And they were two separate... Uh, dinners they um i don't know even how well the family gets along but you know and one of the children i think lives in europe um so um and the so you didn't really learn you didn't really learn of any of the insider secrets that you can suddenly share with us. no 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 <laughs> inside although it must be a little strange growing up in that uh kind of in a cocoon you know I just think about it when uh, you talk to the average Cuban person, you know, they suffer a lot of indignities. They, um, one of uh, my friends um, from New Orleans, you know him, Michael, um, his family's from Cuba and they're from Palma Soriano, which is the little town um, in Oriente province where Fidel Castro is from. So their great grandfather and Fidel's father were friends. So they have a long history of friendship in the family, nothing political or anything, but um, so they're from Palma Soriano and there's another cousin there named Nelson who I met. Um, and again, Nelson is connected, Nelson McDonald. <laughs> Good Cuban name. And right. uh, that, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, his grandmother came from or great grandmother came from Jamaica, one from Jamaica and one from Ireland. So his name is Nelson McDonald McDonald. Actually, he's a double McDonald. So, right. <laughs> well, Cuba was a crossroads right back in the old right. days before it sort of became sealed off, hermetically sealed from the world, this kind of time capsule. But um. But Nelson was really great and just a gentleman all the way. But you could see um, even he connected and knowing people had to suffer these indignities. Like they won't let Cuban people into 
um, the hotels. So, in fact, we were at the Riviera, and I said, come to the bar and just let me buy you a drink. And he um, began to act nervously. You know, he didn't want to say no. He didn't want to seem rude. Um, and I said, well, just come in. And he said, okay, I'll try. I didn't understand at the time, but um, when we were walking in, he even knew the doorman. And the doorman just said, you know, I can't, right, sorry. Because they, I guess both are in jeopardy. If, uh, if the doorman loses his job, it's quite a good job to have um, uh, closeness to tourism. That's where the dollars and the euros come through first. Um, he didn't want to jeopardize that job, even though he was friends with Nelson. And even though Nelson conducts himself with the greatest dignity and is a wonderful person, and knows Do they still have influence over the government? <laughs> and the father of Fidel Castro, he can't, can't do, just do come the to sons still have, that have influence? a coffee with me at the bar. Huh? Is that why? Is that because the sons still have influence over the country? Well, I think a lot of tourist places have that. Um, it's like that. Um, I think it's a form of control, of course. But, you know, even if you go to Cancun in Mexico, you'll see often they're hustling the Mexican families off of the beach that's supposed to be, you know, some resort beach or for some hotel, which I find tragic and uh, very offensive. Um, I felt the same way in that aspect about Cuba. Um, so you could also, if you um, want to protest that still visit Cuba, you can stay in a house. There are Casa Particulares and also Airbnb now where you can uh, rent a fabulous place uh, one of my friends who came and was there also on the weekend visited from Amsterdam, and he had really a fantastic renovated um, apartment in Old Havana. It was beautiful. It was like the one I mentioned earlier, but redone to and completely modernized. Marble stairs, repaired tile floors, beautiful courtyard, just fantastic. Um, and along with that $400 a night, um, you had a guard to watch the door, which you didn't need. You had um, a cook, which you might need. And you had a house manager who was there teaching people how to dance when I went to visit. <laughs> so you get a lot of employment out of that Airbnb in Cuba. But uh, anyway, it's uh, there are many ways to, to do it. And a casa particular is a family that has a special license to host uh, outside guests. Wait, so does everybody speak English in Cuba? I beg your pardon? Does everybody speak English in Cuba? Did you have any, No, I mean, no, no. But they have a pretty high degree of English proficiency, a tremendous amount of pride and um, self-care, and they really try. And I, I hearken back to even um, just a couple of years ago when I was in northern India, but in, in China back in 89, I mean, because um, the exposure to a lot of the outside world, television is very limited and, you know, the Internet is limited. They have a, um, a certain innocence, like a naivete, which is very sweet. I don't want to sound condescending at all. I know it probably isn't easy. <laughs> you think, you know, but there's a very real um, and genuine sweetness. There's not a hardening, not a bitterness. Um, people really want to make a connection with you. Of course, they love a dollar, you know, but I talked to the, bi the bicycle taxi guys. Like, you know, I was trying to figure out who's, uh, 
at the lowest rung of the economic ladder, right? The guys working in the <clears throat> in the record stores, maybe the the bicycle taxi guys for sure. Um, but they at least have a chance to get money from tourists. So, and uh, many of them were really open just to talking. Um, and again, hoping to get to the U.S. A lot of them. Um, one guy I talked to named Josh who drove a BC taxi near Old Havana in near the Floridita uh, was very thoughtful. He has an uncle in Chicago and he's been turned around twice. He said, I was almost to Florida. We could see it and the boat died and there were 19 on the boat and the Coast Guard came and arrested them all and back to Havana. And he tried again and failed again. <clears throat> the second time he said he didn't get close really. They were picked up by the Coast Guard. So, um, yeah, it's uh, some of the stories are kind of heart-wrenching. But I will say, again, the people have food. They're well-fed. There is uh, a very real, um, the economy is definitely stifled. You know, um, you could see there was a lack of um, supplies. Do you think it will grow again? Oh, it would grow. There's a, you know, those, the, the, the. I'm still trying to figure out whether you'll invest in Cuba in the next 10 years. Oh, I whatever. would. But I'm not trying to figure out what exactly depends, that is, just whether right? you think you will. Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways I, I was not trusting of China and I still am not um, after having lived there and just looked at the, the quality of propaganda and the one party state. Um, and what passes for information that uh, many economists here in the West still swallow whole. Yesterday, Alibaba reported that they sold $15 billion right. worth of goods in the first half 90 minutes. of single day. 90 day. minutes. Look, Alibaba can't deliver $15 billion worth of goods. And, I mean, it's nonsense. It is a huge, huge, big, fat lie. <laughs> There's nothing else to say about that. But it will be written up and it will be reported. It'll go in the Wall Street Journal. It will be believed. Why? I don't know why. But it will be. And it is just a lie. It ain't true. They didn't sell in goods half of the U.S., more than half, 65% of our GDP in, in six hours. It didn't happen. Good Lord, everybody. <laughs> just believing that stuff makes me crazy, but it's what people do. You believe what you want to. I think uh, there's a better. Oh, I couldn't quantify it. I read the stat earlier today, and I just, I had no idea what to think because I don't, you know, I don't really truly understand how many books or toys that is, you know, and yeah, I try at least right, scale, right. you know, I try and think about country. how many books you had, how many books I had, and I'd be like, they really sold that much? No, right? But I don't. I find yeah. that very difficult. I mean, single day is a big deal, but you know, it's. Um, I almost have to ask myself. Okay, so on the surface, it's a lie, but why, right? Well, they've got to show that investment in the Chinese companies is still good. Yes. So like a little whiff of desperation, too, to make the numbers so big. 31% higher than last year, which was another inflated lie. Um, yeah, I didn't think the Chinese were so into, you know, Christmas either. Right. <laughs> I just want to point that out. I was there in October, and nobody mentioned Christmas once. Yeah. I didn't see a reference to it. Yeah. I was there for 21 days. Yeah. Certainly in America, I can't go 21 days in October without hearing reference to Christmas. Well, so yeah, there's this, uh, 
uh, a tremendous amount of hyperbole in that. But, uh, you know, in Cuba, um, I, don't, I don't get that same sense. Um, but, you know, anything's possible. You still have a one-party state. Um, they want to show the best face to the whole world, as everyone would. Uh, but, you know, there's a there's definitely a gritty reality. And, you know, I have to say just the spirit of the people is pretty remarkable. And they have some, they really do have some wonderful, true, true cultural um, riches, deep, deep riches, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the market. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I'm always interested in the, the vision fund and the craziness and oh. whether you're reading about that too, you know, yeah. speaking yeah. of, uh, uh, of interesting things from, from the same part of the world as China. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm curious in your world, whether you, you're, I mean, obviously you read the wall street journal or whatever, but are you, are you reading about the craziness with, you've been reading about the craziness with WeWork and we've talked about that a bunch before, but just in general, how bigger isn't always better. And, um, yeah, well, it's been, uh, pretty fascinating, right? Like I have always been skeptical of Mayoshi Son. There's been a great hagiography. He's been sanctified and don't get me wrong, but remarkably successful. And well, didn't he invest in Alibaba? Yeah. Uh, he's the, He's the founder of the Vision Fund, Mayoshi Song. Right, right. Yeah. Didn't right. he invest in Alibaba before as well? Yes. Yahoo Early. Japan and yes, Alibaba. That's all I'm but his right. biggest, right, you know, his initial hit was NTT Docomo taking the right. giant, taking on the giant um, publicly held China, uh, Japanese telecom. Um, and, you know, um, and he was right in the right place at the right time. Look, entrepreneurs who are successful have a vision and see things others don't. So again, I, I don't want to say I'm discounting what he accomplished. It's tremendous. And he was right in the right place for wireless with NTT Tacomo and, um, and SoftBank, he taking them on and really building out a tremendous private um, telephone company in Japan, which really didn't like outsiders at all. <laughs> you know, the... Right. That system was very unkind to them. There's a famous story, which I don't believe, where Mayoshi Son says he threatened to set himself on fire at a meeting with, the, I think, the, the postal ministry um, if he didn't get certain investments or whatever. But uh, he says, I was going to set myself on fire, but I forgot the petrol. Well, then you weren't going to set yourself on fire. <laughs> and it's pretty hollow threat. It sounds like Elizabeth Holmes quote. For, for right, wait here while I get matches and fuel. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Anyway, but you know, when I watched the Vision Fund and just the desperation to reach uh, that $100 billion and how um, all of these investments seem like Hail Marys. All of them. Right. All of them. Right. This is back to our conversation about whether... You know, Uber is going to feel like, you know, taking a taxi in Las Vegas, if you remember. You right. Know, how are they going to make up that extra valuation they just paid for it? I don't get right. it. Right. Well, there's, you know, a lot of stuff has surfaced, like you mentioned, with WeWork or We Won't Work. We Won't. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, valuations for real estate. <laughs> yeah. When he, when he met with Adam Newman and asked him what the valuation he thought WeWork should have, and Adam Newman said, oh, I don't know, $10 billion. you know, just making up a number. Mayoshi Son said, no more. And I think very quickly when you have a conversation like that, Adam Newman's no dummy. He's a little crazy. 
but he ain't no dummy. He realized that <laughs> so, Mayoshi Son wanted to invest more money. So he's like, I don't know, 15 billion. And Mayoshi Son goes, no more. <laughs> so <laughs> the number kept going up. And then he said something like, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the the transcript or the in front of me, but he said, you know, only crazy people do do tremendous things. You have to be crazy. And so then Adam Newman's like, oh, okay, 30 billion. He's like, no, 40. I'm going right. to give you $11 billion for a quarter of the company, right? And that's how they came up with this $47 billion valuation, really, because the company was losing more than they were taking in in revenue. The losses were bigger than revenue, which is why last time we talked, I joked he should have just been selling dollars for 90 cents. Model. <laughs> just do that all day and you get the same result anyway well you uh, know, I, I saw this uh i saw you've probably seen the david rubenstein show on bloomberg oh I that's a plane. yeah yeah that's a great show david rubenstein's fantastic yeah so i actually like the way he asked questions but he had uh mashiosi son on on uh and he talked about how he raised 45 billion in 45 minutes and then you know, any any respect I had left for the fund left um, ah. from uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia. Um, right. So, I, you know, the, the fact so like I actually have no issue with the timing. The fact that he bragged about it and laughed about it meant that he didn't really take it seriously. Right. That That is not a small chunk of change. Um, no. That is not something you, you would know, laugh about know. until it already, you know, if you'd return the money, then you tell that story. You yes. return the money. You don't joke about it. Thank you, Neil. I want to say, I want to pause right here. We work with people's savings too, and it is truly sacrosanct. You are right. That's a very good tell to, you know, it's, um, and this is a, a trait of Mayoshi Son. You know, he says he's a scratch golfer. He says all this stuff. There's a, a little too much bragging <laughs> in a lot so, of so is Donald Trump by the golf way because I'm a scratch golfer and I did it in nine hours it's, it's something like that. I did in nine weeks I became a scratch golfer something crazy you know those kinds of things may or may not be true but again I asked that question why why are you saying this and more importantly you could see right through what it tells you that and and he was to borrow from Josh Brown T-shirt cannoning the money <laughs> to these ridiculous projects, and I call it just hail marys. But um, I well, guess so, in you know, his I, experience, I I he learned if you get two big hits out of a hundred, you can still do okay, or two out of forty, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know if the math will work at that level. Um, I agree with this. you. I think it's, it's a not a it's not process. a traditional venture capital model where you raise a hundred million, you know, you make 15, 20 investments and you know, two of them really churn out and it can work out because there's still room to potentially scale some of those tech companies um, that, yeah. that went on to matter. Well, I don't think that works at those high values. And we work in one company and it's a disaster like it was. I mean, that thing was a disaster from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, we just had more real estate and was, was valued less, right? <laughs> That's the example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't think I ever told you the story, but I, I have a close associate is what I'll say. And he took a very small amount of money from, um, from SoftBank. And yeah. one of the deals that the SoftBank money um, required was that they would become a vendor to all of their other clients. 
um, and all of the other people that SoftBank brought stuff from. So I saw the money when it was described to me that way. I saw the money as an insurance to scale. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, if you could go out to SoftBank's 400 clients and you were guaranteed they were going to pick up your product if they needed it, and we're going to assume that half of them needed the, the product, um, and that was just a basic, and everybody was going to open the door for you, um, and they also had a similar agreement, and that was just basic blocking and tackling to, to deliver. And as long as you could deliver even a little bit of what you were saying, you, know, you were going to be okay. And mm -hmm. so they were creating a great little kuretsu, if you will, leaning on each other to make something work um, at, at scale. You know, that never happened. That never materialized at all. Um, but SoftBank did call every week and ask about the spend on everything. Uh-huh. Literally everything. Um, I cannot imagine calling. We have an investment in common in, in Juno Diagnostics. I cannot imagine calling these guys weekly and asking them what they're spending every penny on. I'm not saying I don't want to report, you know, quarterly or e even more regular at moments, but calling, can you imagine calling Dirk weekly and <laughs> saying, what are you doing with the money this week? What's changed? Yeah. Report anything you spent $5,000 on? <laughs> like, why did you make the bet to begin with? You had to well, question right, Neil, right. It seems like they were trying to create this ecosystem, almost like the old incubators, right? Remember those? CIGI and... Um, Idea Lab, no. Idea Lab, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Those guys, yeah, back. They're in, still down the street and doing okay from you. Uh huh. They're still rolling, yeah. But it's um, it's like that kind of environment. But uh, it does seem um, a bit of helicopter parenting. If you're going to make the investment, you have to give things time to uh, to flower. I don't know. Um, so, you're right. So switch topics with me. So, yeah. So, so, um, you know, we have maybe about 10 minutes left. I'm curious a little bit about uh, what you're seeing, in the, what, what trends that are the most interesting to you currently for the next few minutes. And then I'm, I, I'd like to start a more regular theme about uh, what interesting things you're seeing in med devices and biotech, because I know that's not necessarily something you spent as much time looking at, even though you definitely looked before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, well, first in the, the market trends, you know, we've got almost all of the, well, at least 80% or so of the S&P 500 companies um, reporting and earnings are down, gap earnings by about 1%. It's not a huge contraction over a year ago, but the market is uh, much higher <laughs> than a year ago, 22% higher. Um, those numbers are a little strange to me. Um, not only that, but, you know, revenue is pretty much flat. So not a lot of growth. Um, the other macro thing that's uh, kind of concerning is uh, if you look at a longer term chart, you know, the GDP year over year growth rate, uh, the amplitude of that has continued to come down, especially after each successive crisis. So in the 90s, much higher uh, gap earnings. And then the, the dot-com bust and um, a tremendous increase in debt and Fed credit. And then a recovery from 2002-ish, 2003 to 2007, 2008. But again, much lower growth. And then that busted. And now we've been using Herculean efforts to pump up the economy and the financial system. And the, the growth has been terribly anemic. So again, it's that old... Um, adage of a diminishing marginal return. 
the medicine is not as effective as it once was. And I just don't know if it's going to even work come the next crisis. And we're again seeing things slow down. So that's the worrying side of my brain. But the, the positive side is a lot of companies are feeling it. They're falling out of bed. So you're getting good values in certain places. Um, all this talk of a trade war has made a lot of shipping companies very, very cheap, below book value, below their salvage value, which is uh, an old bellwether of value. So you can see that. Um, you can see it in um, you know, companies that are tied to the economy, iron ore, and certain mining companies, et cetera. Um, and then with the Fed continually cutting rates, that's been a boost to precious metals. So that's something we always watch and try to figure out what the real costs are, um, what's real inflation. What's the real reason platinum is so that. cheap right now? Are you buying uh, platinum still? Platinum is cheap, yes. Yeah. Why is it so much cheaper than gold? Isn't it more precious? I mean, it was when I was a kid. It is. Historically, the platinum price has traded at a 25% premium per ounce to gold. So gold's what, 1450 It's come down a little bit. But that suggests, you know, a price of what uh, on on platinum, like um, 16, 1800 or so, eighteen eighty, let's say. Okay. Right? And then what is platinum at today? And roughly? it's uh, today it's around uh, nine hundred. It's like half price, half off. Do you still understand why? Uh, a lot of it is uh, palladium had this same situation, and we invested in palladium the physical metal about uh, two years ago under the same circumstances. Again, pr pretty much the same profile. Um, and the palladium market has grown and the palladium price has recovered substantially. So that's way, way back up. And recently we switched some of our portfolio investments to platinum from palladium because we're seeing the same thing. Now, over 80% of the platinum that's mined comes from South Africa. So there is a, a little bit of an overlay, possibly um, challenges with the South African economy can affect platinum prices, but mostly the industrial use for platinum is in catalytic converters and the auto industry is slowing, but that also would affect palladium, which it has, but a lot less. So I don't quite have all the answers, but palladium was lagging too. Sometimes I just think it's um, generally that the precious metals complex was kind of abandoned, um, and now it's well, getting a resurgence of interest. Yeah, so and I think that's a kind I of. I mean, my people will keep gold strong. I think forever. Yeah, and and even silver prices, which are more volatile, um, are are pretty low too relative to gold, to their historic relationship. So I just think um, you know sometimes things get widowed or orphaned <laughs> in the market for a while, like I just mentioned, like shipping companies or like uh, iron ore producers like Cleveland Cliffs or something, you can see where there's just real value. Um, can I ask what, what you're doing year to date, IR? Um, well, it depends. We manage a few different portfolios. Um, some are right. just for income, which have a little bit lower return. But um, so on balance in the income portfolios, we're up around 10.03%, uh, a little over, just a hair over 10% on average through the income portfolios and in the equities, um, uh, in the equity portions over 27%. But a lot of that happened since, um, just since May because of the dr wow. dramatic rise in the metals prices beginning around uh, mid-May to May 22nd. Uh, we saw a jump in the precious metals prices and particularly gold 
from about 1250 an ounce to over 1550 briefly and it settled back a little bit but i think we're in the next phase of a bull market for the metals um it makes me wonder too as you were asking from a larger perspective macro if we're not entering a period that's a that's not unlike the 70s where we had this sort of stagflation the economy was slowing but there was a tremendous amount of um, money growth from the central banks um, <clears throat> that kept prices high, but economic activity was very sluggish. So uh, eventually inflation caught hold and people, um, investors, pension funds, moved more and more money toward commodities and hard assets, defensive ideas, um, and um, less uh, were less interested in growth. I mean, by the time I really started to get interested in investing in the late 70s, the very late 70s, 79, 80, 81, 82, I mean, when you turned on the news at night, all you heard were commodities reports. You know, it was the, you know, the Business Week commodities report. Interesting. It wasn't, no one was paying attention to the stock market. <laughs> it was a, a well of disappointment that no one could bear to watch. But uh, they would make comments about it. But really what led... Were, I mean, really, things like gold, of course, silver, pork bellies, um, oil, absolutely, oil and energy. Um, yeah, so um, we'll see what shakes out. Now, in, in biotech, and, you know, we're really seeing a lot with biosimilars, right? Like Amgen has been doing very well lately. Um, those are more established. You know, your, your eye is on a smaller space, Neil, and I think you might have a greater perspective than I do and what trends are new and what are taking the hold. only yeah, the, the major trend is so less about an economic trend and more about a technological trend which i think could lead the economics at some point um is you know i'm seeing better and better put together companies at later stages that um, and even at earlier stages in terms of the ideas um that science has has moved from um, you know, in the, in the lab to an actual technology that people and companies are now trying to be able to put out for, uh, the rest of the world to use. So I'm going to try and be more specific in that really abstract statement. Hmm. You know, I kind of felt like everything was about information technology over the last, you know, 30 years. And I think mm -hmm. we're really going to see a lot more about biology than we ever have before. Mm -hmm. Um, and Eugene, who works with me kind of talked a little bit about, that this last week with Fitbit being acquired by, by Google, you know, there's, it, it told him that there were a lot of people who are now going to spend a lot more time in the tech field, also working on what looks, what, you know, health, well, health and wellness really look like. And that really huh. starts at basic biology. Um, huh. So, you know, I, I, without drinking my own medicine, without uh, being overly excited about what I'm seeing, I, I, I do feel like the quality is going up. So that could also be uh, just due to the fact that, you know, we see better and better deal flow all of the time uh, at Zoic. But I think it's probably more of a market trend, right? Like when um, you say quality, Neil, what are the aspects of quality you're seeing that have improved in what specific ways is yeah, so, deeper in quality? Yeah. So um, great management teams who have spent, you know, a, a long time working on a problem. Um, that they think will affect the mass market. And if you sat with them for a little bit of time, you would think so too. Mm -hmm. And believing that they can actually get it to mass market. Mm -hmm. um, is, that, is that 
definitive enough for you? Are you looking That's for That's very helpful. Yeah, no question. And and have trends that from the regular tech sector, like big data and other ways of evaluating and crunching the numbers helped? So it's interesting. I am now seeing like the the a little bit of a trend in people trying to use, uh, you know, AI crawlers, I'll call them, mm-hmm. to gather more information. Um the the one thing that I'm more convinced of watching the Vision Fund and meeting the AI crawler companies um, is there's not much there's not much that can really truly replace doing a lot of hard work in diligence and building your process and your thesis mm-hmm. um, that an AI machine is going to be able to do anytime soon. I'm not saying there's not a place in the market for a high frequency trader, even in the venture market. I'm just saying I, I don't trust it yet, um, and it'll be a little while till till I could. Um, right. and so while I am seeing much better tools than, than were available just three years ago, right. um, you know, I being fairly excited, uh, I sent you, uh, here's, here's a little fun aside. I sent you a update on uh, our portfolio, um, in our first investment vehicle and, you know, two of the companies, uh, over the week, uh, received, uh, offers for their next round investments. Um, so without right. going into that here, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you all about that when we end without going into that here. Uh, right. it, it's kind of interesting to see, um, mm-hmm. um, other than management quality though, in the companies you're seeing, you mentioned technology quality too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of things that, you know, as we, information is helpful in discovering knowledge that you can action. So mm-hmm. as we've been in this information age, um, you know, it's, it's truly helped to spur, uh, actionable ideas in biology. And, you know, as, as, you know, electrical engineering has really taken off as well. You're able to kind of, and mechanical engineering, um, probably is fairly, it, while the field is growing, um, it's understood better because there's more knowledge about it just mm-hmm. because we disseminated more knowledge. I think you're seeing companies be able to take advantage of those things together and come up better. Uh, actual tech companies, uh, mm-hmm. tech, not to be confused with software. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Ian. That's great. Yeah, and happy happy to jump into that with you as well. Yeah, I'd love it. Well, this has been great talking to you. 